0: Welcome to AMDG, I'm Mike Jordan Lasky and I have a confession, I might be addicted to Twitter. For the non-tweeters out there, Twitter is addictive because it's a fire hose of content that never stops running. It's a perfect and dangerous tool for someone like me, who has a voracious appetite for information about politics and sports and music and Catholicism and more. Of course, Twitter is way more than the most used app on my phone. It's a huge social media service with over 300 million active users, including one very active user with a high profile who lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. President Trump's controversial Twitter use is a constant reminder that Twitter impacts politics, economics, and social movements around the world. In addition to being the president's preferred mode for communicating with the public, Twitter has been the main platform of choice for movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too. There are also important questions about Twitter's role in our discourse, as its openness as a platform can lead to harassment and bullying. And the constant stream of information Twitter provides can keep us glued to our phones even at the dinner table. My guest today is a great person to talk to about all these issues. Colin Kroll is the head of public policy, government, and corporate philanthropy for Twitter. After graduating from Boston College in the late 1980s, Collins spent three years in Peru as part of a Jesuit-run mission project, and these Jesuit roots pointed him on a career path of working to make sure all people have open access to telecom and technology services. Our interview today is in two parts. Right after we spoke for a first time, Twitter announced that it would be banning political advertisements on its platform, so we circled back to talk about that decision after the first part of the interview be sure to stay tuned all the way to the end to hear that. And don't forget to subscribe to AMDG wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a nice review on iTunes if you could. Thanks for joining us. All right, well, Colin Kroll, thank you so much for joining us on AMDG. How are you doing? Excellent. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So your, your current role is uh, at a, a vice president at Twitter focused on on public policy. Uh, so could you just maybe introduce yourself by telling us a little bit about, about what you do there?
1: Yeah, so I'm the global head of public policy uh, for Twitter, and I was the uh, first public policy hire for Twitter eight years ago. And the public policy team at Twitter uh, essentially does three core jobs. Uh, The team uh, does the job that uh, most people would associate with a company that reaches a certain size, which is to have ambassadors for the company to uh, elected officials, to regulators, to ministers, uh, and to civil society to interact on issues of public policy uh, in government and that's the government relations function. The second function is reflective of our product. Uh, We're not a mobile handset manufacturer, we're not a bank. Uh, The core product for Twitter is an open platform for human expression and uh, two entities that uh, need to express themselves from time to time are governments uh, and citizens. Uh, So we also are the team that tries to showcase the use of uh, Twitter in government circles. So whether it's the State of the Union address, whether it's a candidate debate, whether it's a uh, Twitter Q&A or a town hall uh, that a politician does uh, through a live um, uh, periscope on Twitter, uh, the team helps to animate the platform and to train uh, political parties and government officials on the use of Twitter so they can use it in their uh, daily uh, work. And then finally, we're also the team at Twitter charged with guiding and supporting Twitter's corporate uh, philanthropy. So
0: we're the Twitter for good team as well, and we discharge that responsibility around the world. So what are, what are some of the big public policy issues that a company like Twitter would be paying close attention to? Uh,
1: you know, certainly uh, ones that put us right in the middle of that intersection of uh, news and, and politics for sure. Uh, the public policy issues that we deal with uh, can range from uh, addressing safety, abuse on the platform, uh, foreign interference uh, in elections, <clears throat> uh, internet freedom issues such as net neutrality, intermediary liability, uh, issues with respect to um, uh, trolls, uh, and any attempts to manipulate uh, the, pa- the platform. Uh, and finally, uh, work that we do with violent extremism uh, and uh, counterterrorism, uh, in particular over the last um, uh, six months or so we've been uh, actively involved in the Christchurch call uh, process that came out of the the, the shooting in, in Christchurch, New Zealand uh, that has involved governments, uh, some of the high-tech companies and uh, civil society stakeholders as well.
0: I'm excited to get into a lot of those issues and talk about how Twitter's in the news. Uh, But I want to first start by talking about you and your own journey there and and why you're on this Jesuit podcast. You have some Jesuit background, so maybe tell us a little bit about uh, that experience in your life, how you first kind of got connected with Jesuits and the things you've done uh, in partnership with them.
1: Sure, so I'm a graduate of Boston College, which is um, a Jesuit uh, university in Massachusetts. And uh, it was a formative experience for me because one of the things about the um, curriculum at uh, BC was that uh, notwithstanding the fact that I entered as a math major in a computer science minor or uh, computer science concentration, uh, the core curriculum required you to take two philosophy classes, two theology classes and to become a well-rounded human being and even though I might have gritted my teeth at the time uh, to have to depart from what I thought was the most important Uh, Course uh, courses of study that I should undertake. uh, I am subsequently grateful uh, for the fact that the course curriculum required me to branch out and take a diverse uh, suite of uh, disciplines and in particular uh, I wound up migrating away from my math major uh, and wound up as a poli-sci major But I was one course shy of a double major in philosophy, which I never would have expected walking in uh, uh, my first day as a freshman. Uh, I kept the computer science concentration, however, the whole way. So while I was at BC, I learned uh, computers and programming. So I learned to program in COBOL, in Fortran. I learned assembly language for the M68000 Motorola microprocessor and the apples that BC had on campus at that time. So in essence, I learned you know computer languages that are now deader than Latin Um, but they were insightful to me because they taught me how computers think and how they function which subsequently became uh, important uh, in my work uh, when I eventually went to Capitol Hill but before going to Capitol Hill after I graduated from BC I worked briefly for uh, a congressman from Massachusetts who was my hometown congressman Uh, his name is Ed Markey he's also a graduate of Boston College and Boston College Law School Uh, And then I went to Peru with the Jesuit international volunteers. And I worked in Arequipa, Peru, in uh, south-central Peru, which is Peru's second largest city. Uh, And at the time, uh, this is in the late 1980s, uh, Peru was being uh, plagued by uh, terrorists from Sendero Luminoso, uh, the Shining Path uh, guerrilla movement. Uh, And it was an opportunity for volunteers from Boston College in Arequipa and Tacna, Peru, Uh, further south uh, to uh, involve ourselves in uh, the society at that time which was undergoing a lot of stress but particularly because of where we were in Peru uh, I was teaching at a Jesuit high school so I taught English and math and then helped set up the first computer lab at that Jesuit high school uh, given my computer science background uh, and taught there that was part of the work that I did The second half of my job was I worked with a mother's club of indigenous women uh, who ran a community soup kitchen and also worked at an orphanage. Uh, It was interesting because the indigenous women who ran the community soup kitchen, what you realize in Peru is that the women really uh, dominate and control the community. Uh, They're the ones that kept the communities together. Uh, and uh, the women would alternate working in the onion and garlic fields around Arequipa but these women were recent arrivals in Arequipa, they had come down from the Sierra to escape the uh, economic hardship but also the violence from the guerrilla movement and so they were coming down from Puno and the Lake Titicaca area and some from Cusco uh, to Arequipa and they would be in these uh, very quickly set up communities surrounding the city and they were called Pueblos Jovenes literally young towns uh, and they were essentially land invasions uh, and they would take over uh, parcels of land that were otherwise unoccupied on hillsides and the rest they would try to string electricity from the municipality themselves uh, to animate uh, the uh, life of the community uh, so this was eye-opening uh, as an experience for me because going from the Jesuit high school to then go out into the shanty towns uh, was uh, you know, traveling uh, across, uh, to a certain extent, uh, the classes in Peruvian society at the time. Part of what I was trying to do at the Jesuit high school was to get some of the boys uh, to come out with me to the shanty town, to volunteer at the orphanage, to volunteer uh, at the soup kitchen so that they too could share in the experience of their fellow Peruvians uh, and uh, try to provoke that empathy Uh, and perhaps a commitment on their part to do something there. And that goes back to the Jesuit core uh, educational values about creating women and men for others. And so that was part of what uh, we were trying to do there. When I returned, it was two years, 10 months. I came back and worked for the Congressman who I had worked for right after graduating uh, from BC, came straight to Washington, worked for Congressman Ed Markey when he was on the House side. He happened to be the chairman of the Telecommunications and Finance Subcommittee, and that allowed me to have this unbelievable front row seat to all of the changes that were going, uh, that were underway as technology changed from analog to digital and the rise of the internet. Uh, And so there was a series of laws that were passed in the 1990s, I won't belabor uh, talking about all of them, but they really changed the face of the telecommunications landscape and led to this um, uh, deployment in wireless and broadband technology across the country uh, and uh, the uh, app economy, so to speak, uh, and uh, delighted in that work uh, over time. And then when President Obama was elected, I worked briefly at the Federal Communications Commission uh, and then eventually made my way to Twitter.
0: I want to go back to your Jesuit roots a little bit. Yep. So, uh, all of the, the international and domestic volunteer programs are under this program, a Jesuit Volunteer Corps, which sends young people uh, all over the, the world. And one of their mottos is uh, ruined for life. I'm not sure if you've heard that. Ruined for life. The sense you go through this experience, and then what you might have thought you would have done after or your value, things just won't ever be the same. Uh, did you feel like you were ruined for life from that really good chunk of time in Peru? Uh, no question about it. It,
1: it. it could not but help to change my perspective on the world, uh, the perspective of what um, was valuable uh, in a work life. Uh, and uh, when I came back to the United States, part of what interested me in working on Capitol Hill and working in the telecommunications and internet sector was also to think about how do these technologies... And how do the changes in technologies, how can they be harnessed to improve the lives of people here? And so that would go to policies around universal service. It would go to policies around making sure that uh, the internet got to K-12 schools, classrooms, to public libraries, so that everybody would have access to the the tools of the information age and access to uh, that um, internet community. Uh, It goes to uh, the work that uh, we did uh, to ensure that closed captioning uh, and video description were part of our telecommunications landscape. So the deaf and hard of hearing and sight impaired would also be able to participate in the communications and internet revolution. So a lot of the work that I did was still, while it was in kind of this nerdy internet telecom space, was still animated by the desire to harness these collisions of uh, broadband behemoths in policy circles with broadcasters, television, cable uh, operators and the like and see how you could wring out a public interest benefit uh, in the policies that you were enacting as the technology shifted from analog to digital. And so I, I do think that is part of what was animating my interest there. The good news was as I was a, also was working for an alumnus of a, a Jesuit university because the congressman himself was very much an advocate uh,
0: for these policies. Were there any individual Jesuits at Boston College or you in, met in Peru or, or other times who had a big impact on your life?
1: There were certainly, uh, certainly the, um, the Jesuit who ran the International Volunteer Program at BC, whose name was Giulio Giulietti. Uh, uh, Father Giulio was also my theology professor. Uh, he got, helped to create this program at BC, which was eventually folded into Jesuit Volunteer Corps Uh, down the line, but at the time it was its own sort of standalone Boston College volunteer program. At the time we had volunteers um, in uh, Peru, in Nicaragua, Jamaica, Belize, Egypt, uh, but it's obviously a much more uh, expanded program under the rubric of JVC. Father Bill Neenan uh, at BC is a fairly famous Jesuit who passed away uh, a few years ago, Uh, but I remember him uh, being just this incredibly friendly Um, uh, Jesuit who used to play intramural uh, basketball with us in the in the gym Uh, but he also put out almost annually a a book list a reading list uh, that uh, a lot of BC uh, students and BC alums uh, would look to for suggested readings Uh, that was interesting and when I was in Peru uh, I was fascinated by the Jesuit community at the high school because it was a mix of Spaniards and Peruvians there's one Jesuit who was there from the Philippines uh, but just to see how they lived in community, to join them for, uh, for dinner, to you know, partake a little bit in their lives, uh, to see how they lived, but also to see their daily commitment uh, to the school and to the community was uh, impressive. Uh, Juan Luis Lasarte uh, was Peruvian, he was the head of the school at the time, who was just a bundle of energy and optimism, uh, who also sadly passed away uh, a few years ago. Uh, And then I remember also there was a young American Jesuit from the Chicago province at the time who was serving in Peru back then. He was in Lima. His name was Kevin Flaherty. Uh, But he was living in one of the poorest communities uh, in Lima, which is to say he was living in one of the poorest communities anywhere on the planet at the time. And El Agostino is the name of that um, Pueblo Joven in Lima. And uh, just to visit Lima and to visit his work in that community uh, was always uh, very
0: impressive to me. So you talked about how then some of you know, these values led you to, to public service and being involved there, working to make sure people had access to things like the internet and information and be able to participate in our democracy through those important channels. Um, then you've again for the past handful of years now been at, at Twitter, which is a, sounds like with similar values and um, concerns, but on a, a different side. What what led you from the kind of uh, the public side of things to a company like Twitter? The
1: the thing about my transition to Twitter was that it was um, as seamless a transition from uh, the government sector to the private sector as I could have imagined, in part because uh, the ethos of the company and the attributes of the service uh, aligned with my own personal policy compass so well uh, that uh, it allowed me to advocate on behalf of Twitter things that I otherwise would have been embracing and advocating uh, in government. And so, uh, uh, embracing an open internet architecture, embracing open APIs and the ability of people to freely communicate, uh, embracing uh, strong privacy protections, embracing uh, the human rights uh, use case uh, on the platform. Uh, embracing and advocating for net neutrality Uh, all of those things were part and parcel of the work I was doing in government Uh, and now uh, I was working for a company that was animating uh, the ability of individuals uh, almost for the first time in history uh, to reach anybody else on the planet in real time no matter who they were or where they were you could speak to some of the most powerful people some of the most famous celebrities Uh, and they could speak back to you. So that ability to uh, kind of have an even playing field and uh, democratize access to information and to democratize access to healthy um, uh, conversations was what uh, was quite uh, appealing to me uh, and what had driven my work at Twitter. This is also something that was important to me uh, in coming to Twitter, which was the fact that uh, the corporate philanthropy work would be part and parcel of the public policy work. And so that has always been uh, close to my heart. And so being able to harness uh, the platform to work with charities, to work with NGOs in helping to fulfill their mission and using Twitter as a tool in doing that was also something that was quite gratifying
0: uh, in my day job. I imagine some of our listeners are a big Twitter users, some not as much. If you meet people on an airplane and they ask you what you do and they're not familiar with the service, do you have like a, your elevator pitch or for, what, for what Twitter is? I know because it it's in the, in the news, a lot of people hear about it but might not be or hear about the president using it especially. But uh, in terms of why should someone sign up if they're, if they're not involved, what is your usual pitch for that?
1: Yeah, you know, what I explained to the most, most everyone I ever talk to uh, is familiar with Facebook because almost everybody has a Facebook account. Um, Fewer people have Twitter. Uh, Those that um, have Twitter uh, would be quite familiar with it. For those that aren't currently users, uh, the way I explain it is that it's an open platform, it's a public platform. And initially that can be quite intimidating to people, particularly if um, they're introverts. Uh, They get on the platform, they think they need to say something, and they feel like perhaps they're failing by not sharing. But the reality is is that uh, There's probably 30% of Twitter users at any given time who uh, don't uh, tweet their own content, who simply consume, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, There are people who tend to use it like a news feed uh, and thereby can stay informed about what's happening in their community, what's happening in the country uh, and the world. People use it for different things. I know here in Washington, uh, interest over-indexes towards politics and news. uh, But NBA Twitter is amazing Twitter. Uh, there's uh, you know, garden clubs and, and people who uh, follow poetry and, and literary accounts. And so there uh, uh, is uh, globally a very strong interest in K-pop uh, on Twitter. So it's not all news and politics, but it allows you to get in, informed about the things that are most of interest to you and allows you to share your perspective directly with the world uh, in your own words. There's a
0: a, a lecture you gave at a human rights forum in in Oslo a few years ago, and we can link to that in the the show description, which you talked about the the work of, the role of Twitter in kind of human rights promotion. Uh, And that was something that I think a lot of Jesuits and Jesuit affiliates kind of use it for. So talk about what are some of the strengths that allow Twitter to be used uh, by human rights activists?
1: Yeah, so one of the things about Twitter, because it's an open platform, and because it's so fast, uh, and because it's widely distributed, Uh, it allows people to bear witness to history. It allows people to bear witness to atrocity and to share that with the world from their phone. And so uh, you can be anywhere in the world and if you have something that you think is important for the world to know, you can share that. And the Twitter community responds to that. What it has allowed is that historically less powerful voices, historically marginalized voices, are able to break into the media mix at the local, national, or global level and share these important perspectives with the world. And this is where hashtags can become movements and help to move society forward. So if you go back you know, 10 years, if uh, an Afri- African-American male was shot in a suburb of St. Louis, it might have made the suburban newspaper. Um, but when Ferguson, uh, uh, as a hashtag, started to trend on Twitter, and uh, the community on Twitter started to persistently tweet and share their perspectives, their outrage, uh, their concern about that, it eventually migrated to mainstream media so that, you know, later CNN and other major news outlets had to cover what was happening in the suburb of St. Louis. And Twitter helped to launch the Black Lives Matter movement because it allowed uh, those voices to be on equal footing with the largest media conglomerates in the world and share their perspective there. The Me Too movement also was something that was quite a Twitter phenomenon for the same reason where an individual uh, might not have felt that she could say something about her previous uh, experience with people and have people respond to it uh, with, with, with empathy and with understanding and that Me Too movement Uh, was also something that is made possible by an open platform that is fast and conversational. So if you think of the human rights case, uh, to be able to share from uh, anywhere in the world something that's happening, something that affects perhaps a marginalized community, perhaps a minority uh, in that uh, uh, community, in that society, uh, people who are being um, uh, abused, uh, people who might be threatened, and sharing that with the world in real time is is vital. The ability to also do that using a pseudonym is also something that Twitter avails users of doing. And that's critically important for free expression because sometimes, in some places, in certain circumstances, the ability to speak freely is directly tied to your ability to speak safely and securely. And the ability to use a pseudonym while not perfect for assuring anonymity is certainly something that uh, that helps. So whistleblowers, uh, consumer advocates, uh, agitators, uh, but certainly dissidents in uh, countries with controlling authorities uh, use Twitter because they can use the, the the pseudonym. Journalists operating in some tricky parts of the world also use pseudonyms and, and interact with with sources in that way. So that's very important for free expression and very important for the human rights uh, use case. I think it's. You can,
0: you've laid out some of the real benefits to an open platform like Twitter, which again, anyone can be there. And you can, people who, as you said, are usually marginalized can have their voices heard and can get uh, access, uh, help spread the word about things. But of course then being open, that also allows for people to misuse it, to to bully others, to troll, to spread misinformation. How does Twitter approach those questions of balancing freedom of expression with also you know the, the freedom to not be attacked online?
1: Yeah, they, it's such a great question. And to a certain extent, they go hand in glove. So there's no question that when you avail historically marginalized voices uh, to be heard, uh, that can be extremely beneficial to marginalized voices uh, that are bringing a perspective that's valuable, important to share uh, with a broader community and, and to be heard in that way. But there are probably some marginalized voices that historically were marginalized that we would prefer to remain marginalized. Uh, And those are abusers, trolls, uh, people who uh, are engaged in hateful conduct. And in that uh, scenario, the way we think about free expression is that if you are bullied and abused into silence or bullied and abused to such an extent that you leave the platform, then we've lost your free expression. We've lost your perspective. Your perspective and your voice is unique. Uh, We want it. Other Twitter users would benefit from it. So we can't have people bullied and harassed into silence because then we lose the value of that voice and that perspective. So that's why we have to have rules in place to ensure that uh, certain conduct is policed and enforced so that we have a healthy public square, a healthy public conversation, and that means being able to speak safely and securely without abuse and harassment. So over the last several years, we've increasingly put tools in place uh, for users to... Uh, navigate uh, the platform in ways where they can block accounts, they can mute accounts, they can go into the settings and change notifications uh, uh, the way uh, they would deem uh, beneficial to themselves. But the other uh, aspect of this, which is critical, is that uh, Twitter has taken upon itself uh, to do more of the work for users rather than placing the burden on the victims. So if you go back a year ago, Um, About 10% of the accounts that we actioned for abuse were initially surfaced for agent review using technology. Uh, That percentage is now 50%. So 50% of the uh, actions we're taking on accounts for abuse today were surfaced proactively by Twitter for agent review, meaning they were surfaced proactively for agent review without a user report. And if we do that, and we do that uh, at scale, and if we do that on a timely basis, it hopefully means that we're taking action on abusive accounts before victims may even see it. And that just creates a healthier platform. So going up to 50% now is a significant milestone, uh, but it's part of the commitment of to use technology to help solve some of the problems that technology itself poses for us at scale.
0: Yeah, I think that's the big question too. Is the the volume uh, of you know, traffic on, on Twitter is just massive and unimaginable. How do you police that in, in a way that doesn't end up then ca- you know accidentally catching up people who shouldn't be you know suspended or, or, or banned from Twitter? Uh, so what, like logistically, how, how how is that done?
1: Right. So you know we serve today roughly 500 million tweets a day. So that's a billion tweets every two days. So nobody at Twitter is reading all the tweets. So uh, what we have to do is uh, certainly hire more people and agents to review, but more than hiring content moderators, uh, we have to leverage technology. We have to invest in machine learning. We have to invest in AI because at 500 million tweets a day, that volume of traffic, we definitely need to harness technology to help us do some of that work and do it smarter and better and to do it in ways that relieves the burden on the users. Uh, To do that, the people who use Twitter should uh, use it and not feel that it's their obligation to always flag things for us, that we can proactively do more of that ourselves. And so that's been the emphasis uh, of the internal teams uh, is to really focus on that technology piece.
0: I want to ask you about another semi related uh, big, I think, challenge in in the age that we're in now, which uh, has been the the threat to democracies posed by uh, again bad actors using social media uh, platforms to spread misinformation. You know, fake news has come up. Uh, Facebook has especially had to deal a lot with that uh, since the last presidential election here in the United States. Uh, what has Twitter learned uh, about? About those things, what are ways to approach it? Will twenty twenty be different than twenty sixteen in terms of the presidential election uh, in this country? What are some of, again the things you've learned in, in that area?
1: Well, one thing we learned is it's hard for a company uh, to go up against a foreign uh, state intelligence agency, uh, and so this is something that the industry has uh, embarked upon uh, increased uh, communication across industry to tip each other off to things that we're seeing on our respective platforms, so that we can be. Um, Uh, quick about addressing them, Uh, but we've also done the work to look back at, for example, what happened in the 2016 US election to learn what were the vectors for manipulation and so what we found on Twitter is that uh, the uh, foreign state actors involved in this were not really using Twitter advertising uh, to a great extent, but instead were seeking to manipulate the the public spaces of the platform because they knew that they had to get content in front of people using Twitter who might not necessarily be following their accounts. So there were attempts to game the trending topics list. Uh, There were attempts to falsify and create inauthentic accounts. So you might see, for example, uh, a Twitter account of somebody claiming to be a real estate agent in St. Petersburg, Florida, but they're actually in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, and so from that standpoint we got better and smarter about looking at uh, the ways in which uh, trends, hashtags, search uh, were manipulated by automation, uh, but increasingly looking at inauthentic uh, accounts as well, so-called fake accounts, and we've done uh, an, an incredible amount of work and investment in what we what we call uh, site integrity, and we've spun up an internal cross functional team to really go after that aggressively, because eighty uh, percent of Twitter users are now outside of the United States. And after the twenty sixteen elections, we had a national election in Mexico, we had a national election in Brazil, we've had a national election in India, we had the EU parliamentary elections, elections in in, in Indonesia, Australia, so that work doesn't end elections are occurring around the world all the time A weekend ago we just had the argentine election so this team has to stay on top of those attempts to manipulate the platform and it's not going to be the case anytime soon that certain governments won't have an interest in trying to manipulate uh social media platforms and the internet either uh, as part of their, uh, as foreign interference in other countries' uh, elections, but also uh, to warp or manipulate the conversation domestically in their own countries. One of the things that Twitter is doing uh, that none of our peers have yet done, but we would encourage them to do this, is when we find a corpus of accounts uh, that we believe have foreign state um, uh, sponsorship uh, or control, Uh, we put those accounts, once we remove those networks, into the public domain. And so we put them in a database publicly available for researchers, think tanks, academics and others to dive into that data, perhaps glean uh, some insights that may be valuable for us in looking for the connective tissues that may help us get to other related accounts and the like. So we've uh, now got uh, accounts that we've removed and put in this uh, database uh, from Russia, from Iran, Uh, from China, from Venezuela, from Ecuador, from United Arab Emirates and so this is work that will be ongoing to continue to police uh, the platform and make sure that these networks of manipulation uh, that are nefarious and seek to undermine the integrity of our service are dealt with as aggressively and in as timely a fashion as we can muster.
0: I want to ask you too about another one of of Twitter's kind of unique characteristics among its peers, which, as you mentioned, is the the use of pseudonyms, which, as you've said, can really help people whose freedom of expression might be threatened in places if they were to use their real name. One way I've seen that play out is on Catholic Twitter. I'm not sure if you spent any time on Catholic Twitter, but as uh, the Jesuit Jim Martin, who's a a Twitter super user, uh, likes to say the motto for Catholic Twitter might be, uh, see how they shove one another. Uh, There can be... uh, a lot of, of discord. The way there isn't any kind of a church as big as the Catholic Church. Um, but I think sometimes you see, and I've seen this happen, and sometimes been involved in it, is that people use uh, pseudonym, uh, pseudonyms on their accounts, and maybe it will be a saint or, or someone, uh, and will behave in a very not, maybe not saintly way. Uh, and in some ways, it seems like there's an ability to almost hide behind that and can say things via the internet using a pseudonym that you wouldn't say to someone face to face, but there's almost kind of some empowering of some of that behavior. Um, what do we do about that?
1: So I think, I think you're right. Uh, there does seem to be a sense that if people were sitting across a table from each other, uh, they wouldn't act the same way that they may act online. Our experience is that uh, the issue of abuse is as much of a problem on platforms that have real names policies as it is on ones that uh, allow use of pseudonyms. And on our platform oftentimes uh, the people who are being abusive and harassing are using their real names. So uh, it's not necessarily the case that because you can use a pseudonym you have a greater proclivity to be abusive. It's certainly the case that it helps to mask uh, your identity but we address and enforce those accounts, whether you're using a real name or using a pseudonym, regardless. Uh, And uh, to the extent to which we are proactively identifying those abusers, we're going to take action. To the extent to which we miss them, people ought to report them uh, so that we can uh, take action on those uh, accounts. And again, what we've seen is that our collective efforts across the board on this is leading to a diminution of the amount of abuse that we're seeing on the platform. And we've seen that over the last year, and we've reported some metrics on that. Now, there's still a long way to go, but we think we've turned the corner, at least uh, uh, on the basis of what we've seen in the early, early results from some of our use of technology and going after this
0: yeah i think a lot of the stuff at least that, that i see that is frustrating wouldn't necessarily hit the the level of abuse They're, it's not something that i'm going to report to twitter or would hope someone would get thrown off or but it's like it's calling people heretics it's you know it's these again these things that are i would again not say are necessarily cross that line but are still like definitely not helping to make the world better and I know that this is kind of just even a more kind of macro internet communication question is is it if we are separated from people is that going to lead to again like a lack of charity or generosity in our in our dialogue Um, is that just something we're going to have to live with uh, in this age
1: I I think you certainly see that but um, you know I think you also see the opposite uh, uh, sometimes too and it's wonderful when we do when you know tragedy hits uh, California wildfires uh, what you see on Twitter is oftentimes great empathy expressed. Uh, after the Christchurch call, uh, there was a study that was done by a researcher in New Zealand that looked at 85,000 tweets um, on hashtags. Um, and the hashtags that were trending uh, in the midst of the tragedy represented and reflected a global wellspring of concern for the people of New Zealand. Uh, concern for the Muslim community there. And the conversation in the aftermath of the attacks, while, yeah, there was probably a small percentage of haters in there, was overwhelmingly uh, about anger about the attacks, concern uh, for the Muslim community, empathy for the victims and their families, uh, and really expressions of, of sympathy, including in di- you know, sort of digital diplomacy amongst world leaders. Responding to that, so there are moments on Twitter where uh, you really do see um, humanity's ability uh, to respond to human suffering at scale. And when that happens, it gives you hope. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure on any given day, you know, certainly prominent people on the platform uh, would endure more induce uh, uh, endure more abuse or. Uh, even if it doesn't cross the threshold of a violation of our abuse rules, uh, certainly more snark uh, than perhaps the average uh, person using Twitter.
0: Right, and I just wrote a column about this, uh, we'll link to in the show notes, uh, for the National Catholic Reporter about Catholic Twitter, especially again in the, against the backdrop of the Amazon Synod, where you had a lot of kind of uh, radical traditionalist Catholics kind of attacking the Pope and, and others. and. Uh, there's the act of vandalism in which an indigenous statue was thrown into the Tiber River, and people were celebrating this, and just this again ugly, and not part of the not really the church I want to be a part of. At the same time, I, you know, and I wrote in this like I have learned a lot about my faith through Catholic Twitter. I have found really holy people who are working to grow in their faith and sharing beautiful things and, and fascinating things, and um, there has been some real goodness there. I guess for us you know, in a community that is kind of centered on this in-person community work, but is also using these tools is to kind of bring, try to remind people like to come back to be rooted in, in a community, to use the tools to connect, but to not have them be substitutes for the in-person uh, community of a, a local church or university or those, or those other things in which that, that kind of face-to-face that can't be replicated as valuable as some of the tools. Yeah, are.
1: use it as a tool to bridge time and space. Uh, and uh, also use it as a tool to, as you say, be informed. Uh, if you come away after you know, checking in on Twitter for two or three minutes and you've learned something, then there's a value there. If, it, if what you've learned helps to inform your your, your life or, or your work, even better. Um, but uh, that's, uh, that's the hope that we use it as a, a as a way to provoke conversation uh, and that really is part of the, the, the focus of Twitter is that it's live it's public, but it is conversational. And, and we wanna make sure that that conversation is healthy, informationally nutritious, safe, secure. That's the goal, and that's what we're aiming
0: for. I wanna come back to something that you just said, which is the, the, the example of checking Twitter for two or three minutes. That would probably be healthier for me in my life, but I'm rarely checking it for just two or three minutes. I'm going back to it over and over again. There's always more there when I refresh. I get all of my MBA stuff uh, and my Catholic stuff and my politics stuff, all the things I've curated. and. Uh, there's been articles recently about um, whether our phones are addictive or not. And this is a behavior my wife would say, I think you might be addicted to this <laughs> because I would be having conversation at dinner and all of a sudden I somehow have refreshed Twitter without even knowing I'm doing it. Um, so in response to that, then there have been these calls for, you know, digital detox, like putting down the phone, unplugging and there are people who pay huge amounts of money to go on these retreats to get away from their technology. Do you find that, do you think that there are real, real dangers in, in some of that? Like a... Uh, whether or not you want to call it addiction, but that we are kind of too sucked into our mobile devices in particular?
1: Yeah, I think there's justifiable concern about that. And I think uh, everybody should take a break. And I think um, having a digital detox is probably very healthy. Particularly, I saw one study recently that's indicated that the average American consumer opens their smartphone 110 times a day. I probably do it more than that. Uh, But that's a lot. Uh, You're not we're not looking for people to be on Twitter all day long, right? We are looking for people, when they come to Twitter, uh, to enjoy the experience and to be informed uh, through their use of Twitter, uh, to engage in conversation, but to walk away having learned something. That doesn't have to take two hours. Uh, that can take two minutes. Uh, but even um, you know, looking at this from my own uh, you know, uh, work, you have to put the phone down. Uh, You have to take a break Uh, and I think uh, there's one of our community partners at um, at Twitter that we work very closely with is an organization called Common Sense Media and they have a campaign that they've launched which uh, we do at home uh, ourselves which is called Device Free Dinner. Uh, Don't bring your phone to the dinner table. You're having a conversation with your family, with your spouse and your, your kids perhaps. You know, put the phone away, no phones at the dinner table. And you wouldn't uh, uh, perhaps be surprised to learn that for a lot of American families, you have people at the dinner table who are eating but have their phones uh, open and and they're answering and responding to email during the course of the meal. So device-free dinner is a way that you can just take a break and focus on the family and focus on dinner table conversation uh, and just take a break from it. And I think everybody uh, would do well to do that from time to
0: time. So among the people who might Want to take a digital detox, um, uh, maybe the most prominent Twitter user, at least in the United States right now, which is uh, the president. Now, President Trump has used Twitter for a long time, and uh, I feel like now, in, in more news stories about presidential statements, we're seeing, we're learning about that because uh, he tweeted it. What has, how have things been different at, at Twitter in the past uh, couple of years since you've been there? with? Um, having a, a president who is so active in using it, uh, ha- what has it changed for you? What what questions has it raised? I know there've been questions about whether he's allowed to block people uh, on Twitter, or if that is then preventing them people from accessing something of yep. public record. So yeah, what what have been the discussions at Twitter about his use? Uh,
1: z- certainly. Um The president's use of Twitter is remarkable. He uses it as his primary communications medium. So uh, that is quite prolific and and prominent use of Twitter, uh, certainly here in in Washington and in the United States as a global leader. uh, Many people around the world get informed as to his views on things. His use of it is remarkable in part because of the authentic voice he brings to it. In other words, when he tweets, people believe it's really him. And that's not always the case with other uh, politicians or other world leaders where they might see a tweet, but they'll, they may presume it's the communications or press secretary uh, in, in, in their policy shop uh, putting out the tweet. His use of it uh, began back in March of 2011. So he's a longtime Twitter user, and the, the power that he has in doing it himself is that as soon as he tweets, most of the media, the journalistic uh, core, uh, here and globally, Uh, start running with it because they don't need to check with the press secretary because that's his Twitter and that's him that's his voice and when he tweets it sounds like his voice so that's uh, incredible power in his use of of Twitter for the authentic um, voice that he brings to it but because I do the global public policy for Twitter I'm more familiar with the fact that leaders around the world also use Twitter Uh, so Prime Minister Modi of India is also a prolific user of Twitter Uh, He has his own voice that he brings to it, uh, but he uses it part and parcel of how he governs uh, in India. Uh, The president of uh, Indonesia, Jokowi, just used Twitter uh, the other week to announce his new cabinet. He announced it on Twitter. So I see uh, use of Twitter by prominent heads of state globally that is not entirely dissimilar to how the president of the United States uses Twitter. Uh, and it is used almost by 97% of world leaders have Twitter accounts and use Twitter uh, today. So because I travel and because I do the global public policy for, for Twitter, I'm more familiar with how it's used globally. And again, as I said, 80% of users uh, are outside the United States. Uh, and so that is also something that we see uh, on the platform.
0: And that has been a big trend uh, the past handful of years. I imagine we were to sit down five years from now. What are some of the emerging trends you're seeing uh, at Twitter or in mass communications at large you think we might be talking about if we got together in a year or two or or five?
1: Yeah, so I I just think back to when I started at Twitter. So when I started at Twitter eight years ago, uh, Twitter was essentially 140 characters in a link. And if you clicked on the link, it took you somewhere else. It took you to YouTube, a YouTube video or something like that. Eight years later, it's 280 characters, but it's also media rich. You can have screenshots, photos, short looped video, and you can also go live directly from a tweet, directly from your phone. That's remarkable uh, uh, and, and perhaps the inexorable march of technology over the course of eight years to now come to a Twitter platform which is 280 characters and the ability to bring live video to users around the world in an instant. So that. Uh, March of technology will continue and certainly Twitter will continue to evolve in the same way that it's evolved over the last eight years and I Presume it will become ever more media rich ever more conversational uh, In that respect, but I think it will probably also reflect general internet trends and trends in technology over that time so if we were to come back, you know in 2025 and have this conversation again, I would imagine we'd be talking more about blockchain uh, and you know kind of the, uh, the, there's a saying attributed to Mark Twain where he said that history does not repeat itself but it does tend to rhyme Uh, and certainly a return to a more decentralized internet a decentralized internet architecture and perhaps governance that blockchain kind of resuscitates uh, means that some of the things that we're focused on now such as content hosting uh, will be less important because with a blockchain technology, you'll never truly remove content, Uh, you'll just be working to make it less visible. So the focus for for Twitter, as we look at it, is more about recommendations uh, and the use of algorithms to discover content, not whether or not it exists somewhere on Twitter. If it exists somewhere on Twitter, but most Twitter users never see it, uh, then the chances of it going viral are vastly diminished. So focusing less on content hosting and focusing more on discoverability and recommendations, I think that will be a trend that blockchain will foster over time.
0: Well, Colin, thank you so much for, for coming in. I really uh, enjoyed this conversation and then big questions for us uh, within the, the Jesuit community who are, again, using these to, things to reach people and to evangelize. It's good questions for us to, to be thinking about. I want to close with uh, a rapid fire uh, segment we include sometimes uh, on the show, which is called 20 questions. I'm going to ask you 20 questions to help get to know you a little bit more. Um, I will not ask any follow-up, so they just come one at a time, and we'll do the 20. Are you ready for 20 questions? Ready. Okay, number one, what are you reading? So I just finished a book uh, by
1: Barry Lopez called Horizon, and he's an environmental nature writer, and he writes beautifully about his experiences over decades with the indigenous communities and writes like an anthropologist, uh, but also a bit like a journalist, uh, and it's uh, quite uh, interesting. I'm reading currently uh, The British Are Coming, by Rick uh, Atkinson, which is about the revolutionary uh, revolutionary period.
0: Number two, what is the best gift you've ever received?
1: You know, when I was a little kid, the best gift uh, ever was uh, my first bicycle uh, because it gave me freedom. uh, And I was able to ride around the neighborhood and go where I wanted. And uh, it was kind of an Ozzie and Harriet uh, type neighborhood at the time. So that freedom uh, and being sort of untethered from the backyard and being able to explore the blocks around my house was, that was a wonderful gift. Number three, your favorite saint? You know, it's a probably, it's a close call between Francis and Ignatius. Francis of
0: Assisi? Of Assisi. Oh, see, okay, yeah. not, not a Jesuit, but it's uh, yes. okay. He's uh, yep. still a beloved one. Number four, your first job? I was a lifeguard. Number five, two weeks in Paris or 10 minutes on the moon? Definitely 10 minutes on the moon. Number six, your least favorite chore? It's probably weeding the vegetable garden. Number seven, if you could uninvent one thing, what would it be?
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's such a great question. My my knee-jerk reaction would be to say email, but um, maybe that's uh, reflecting of how many unanswered emails I have to get to today.
0: (laughs) Number eight, your favorite sound? Laughter. Number nine, your favorite hymn? Amazing Grace. Number 10, your favorite zoo animal? Zebra. Number 11, what superpower would you most want to have? Flight. Number 12, what's the best thing you cook? Probably chili. Number 13, if you were ruler of your own country, what would be the first law you would introduce? Uh, The first law I would introduce would be the ability of the people to vote me out of office. Number 14, what current or past music group would you most want to join? You too. Number 15, what is one thing you will never do again?
1: You know, I once took a bike trip from uh, Washington DC to Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, which is about 60 miles on the C&O Canal. And that's a 1% to 2% grade the whole way and uh, my
0: knees were so shot at the end of that bike trip I will definitely never do that again. Number 16, you have the chance to meet Pope Francis one-on-one but you only get one sentence, what do you say? Please pray for me. Number 17, what could you give a 45-minute presentation on with no preparation? Uh, I could definitely do a 45-minute presentation on the history of telecom and
1: internet policy. Number 18, what's one thing you want to try you haven't gotten around to yet? I'd love to learn how to play another musical instrument, you know, I played clarinet and saxophone when I was
0: a kid, but uh, it's time to pick up something new and learn to play. Number 19, what dumb accomplishment are you most proud of? I can juggle. Number 20, what makes you feel alive? Uh, I love fly fishing because I love being in the middle of a beautiful
1: stream uh, and to hear just the rushing water and be out in nature. Uh, and that
0: really makes me feel alive. Excellent, well, you've made it through 20 questions and our interview. Colin Krull, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, well, Colin, thanks so much for hopping back on for a quick update. The last time we spoke, uh, you, you left our offices and then like a few hours later, Twitter announced uh, that it would be introducing a new policy, uh, no longer uh, allowing for political ads. Uh, that, that policy was scheduled to come out uh, in, on November the 15th. Um, so I, I'm just curious to hear a little bit about that decision. Were you involved at all in, uh, in that decision-making process?
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, That's a decision that uh, I think uh, was something that uh, our CEO uh, shared uh, recently and is reflective of some thinking that uh, the company has been doing uh, over the course of the last several months as we prepare for uh, the 2020 elections here in the United States. Uh, And uh, essentially what uh, the announcement uh, uh, is, is that uh, we are – suspending and ending uh, political advertisements on on Twitter. And so uh, the philosophy behind this uh, shift uh, is essentially that political messages and a political reach or amplification on Twitter should be earned, not purchased and not bought. And so when we think of advertising, uh, we know how powerful it is and we know how Uh, successful it can be, but we don't feel comfortable that we fully understand the implications of that power uh, on our political process, on our civic exercises, such as elections. And so we don't believe uh, advertising should be used to drive political, judicial, legislative, or regulatory outcomes. Uh, But we are going to uh, continue to allow uh, cause-based advertising uh around uh issues of uh, civic importance that uh facilitate public conversation about uh those important topics
0: no i i know that i'm sure there were debates uh, internally as conversations as you were kind of moving in, in this direction and and i guess one one question uh, i know that's come up and something that one of your uh fellow platforms uh facebook has said hey we don't we don't want to get into the business of censoring uh political speech on our platforms um, did you have that discussion about whether this could be seen as censoring speech and what ultimately led you to decide like, hey, we're not, we're not going to move forward with this? Uh,
1: we don't believe it has anything to do with censoring speech uh, because people are able to continue to say what they want about political issues, legislative issues, judicial nominations. Uh, those conversations and that content will, con- will continue to uh, be shared on the Twitter platform and the service will continue to avail people of the opportunity to express themselves freely about political issues. So this isn't about free expression, and it's not about censorship. Uh, People will continue to do that. However, there's a difference between an organic uh, tweet, so to speak, uh, a tweet where you express your political views, and uh, the ability to purchase uh, promotion of that perspective and uh as our ceo indicated uh political messaging and political speech and amplification on the twitter service should be something that's earned uh by the interactions that people have with your uh content through organic retweets and uh, and not purchased so if people want to hear uh what your views are on a particular topic they can follow your account or people can uh, discover it uh by uh choosing to click on a hashtag or people may discover it because somebody else you're following has retweeted that content into your uh, timeline. But we're no longer going to, sec- to accept advertising to put that content in front of people who have not chosen uh, to follow it. And that's a that's a distinction. And that's why we don't believe this is about censorship. Uh, and it's not a threat to uh, free expression, uh, but uh, really about safeguarding uh, democratic uh uh, speech in an election context, in particular, uh, in ways uh, uh, that will help to safeguard uh, the public conversation.
0: I know that in the the preceding, uh, the the intervening time between the announcement and then when the final policy was was announced, uh, there were questions about again what sort of things would count as uh, political advertisements. You know, if a, uh, a a group that was working on climate change wanted to do an advertisement about. Kind of conserving energy, would that be allowed? Versus, if that group are also advocating for a specific bill in Congress, would an ad or about that bill be allowed? Did, did you? What were the the conversations like to kind of decide what would be kind of classified as these kind of banned political ads versus kind of more general public interest ads?
1: Yeah, well, certainly, as with any new policy, uh, we're in a bit of terra incognita and uh, some of the contours of what's permitted and uh, not permitted in some of the uh, edge areas uh, will have to be uh, illuminated and decided uh, over time as those uh, cases are are brought to our attention for uh, decisions and enforcement. But at a high level, essentially what we're saying is we're no longer going to allow political ads, uh, including ads that are focused on uh, candidates, parties, ballot issues, elections, and trying to influence those—we uh, won't allow advertising from candidates, from political parties, or affiliate or, or affiliated groups uh, such as political action committees. Uh, we will allow, however, uh, nonprofits and for-profits uh, to engage in uh, so-called cause-based advertising, uh, and that would be around the education of. Uh, uh, citizens around topics of civic importance, but with restrictions, uh, including the restrictions that they can't uh, uh, include a call to action for or against a specific bill, a specific nomination, uh, a vote in a regulatory agency. And there will also be other restrictions, even on cause-based advertising, uh, that will include restrictions, for example, on micro-targeting to ensure that these exceptions aren't used to do an end run around the general prohibition
0: against political ads. So, since this announcement came out, I'm sure there's been a lot of feedback that you've been hearing and Twitter's been been hearing. What have the the, the responses been so far?
1: Well, uh, there was a lot of immediate um, uh, positive response uh, to the announcement. I think people appreciate and understand that digital advertising can be uh, incredibly effective. Uh, And uh, it is certainly in a commercial context is uh, widely used by brands uh, to, you know, drive interest in in goods and services. But as I said earlier, uh, it became apparent that we don't fully understand the implications for our democracy uh, or uh, have adequate uh, measures or guidelines To address uh, risks uh, that might uh, arrive when it comes to driving political outcomes through the use of digital advertising.
0: Yeah, and that seems to me, I I see some of the prudence there in that, as you're saying, we just don't know a lot about this, right? Like we're learning things all the time about the role that these platforms, social media play in in democracy and uh, that it's it's good to kind of, you know, evaluate, take those, those checks every now and then to say, like, how are things going? What might you need to reevaluate? And I don't know I thought it was a pretty bold, bold step to make that pretty big change, uh, again, with this kind of big uh, election right on the the horizon. Um, Twitter ha- has been in the, the news for a couple of reasons since we first talked, including uh, the announcement uh, earlier in November, that uh, two former Twitter employees who are uh, nationals of Saudi Arabia had been uh, arrested for using their access to Twitter systems to to help Saudi Arabia uh, obtain information on American citizens and, and some Saudi dissidents as well. I know this is a, an ongoing investigation, and so you probably can't share much about, about the details there. But is there anything, what has Twitter uh, said so far? What has been the, the response to to that announcement from the Justice Department?
1: Well, uh, to the extent to which it, it remains an ongoing investigation uh, uh we are limited in what we can share and, and uh, also there is a, a a limit to how much we uh, we know uh, we are grateful to the fbi and to the department of justice for their uh support uh in the ongoing investigation uh but i think what this episode uh indicated and again these events go back several years now so this is uh, uh conduct and uh a compromise uh, that occurred back in 2015 uh, time frame, basically, uh, but what it indicated is the lengths to which uh, bad actors, uh, including state-sponsored actors, uh, will go to try to undermine uh, our service. And uh, the Twitter service uh, is uh, limited uh, internally uh, for Twitter employees uh, to have limited access by employees uh, to sensitive account information and that's limited to a small group of trained and vetted employees. These are employees who also have to go through uh, uh, periodic uh, renewals of that access and their managers need to certify that uh, they, for their work, uh, do indeed need uh, access to this information. Uh, But we uh, need to make sure that uh, we're reassuring uh, the people who use Twitter. Uh, that we're taking uh, the steps uh, necessary to safeguard their information uh, because we also understand the incredible risks faced by uh, people who use Twitter with respect to the sharing of uh, that uh, information, the disclosure of that information, uh, because we treasure uh, their role on the platform and the perspectives they bring uh, to the world. So we want to make sure that the service is safe, it's secure, uh, that it is informative to people, and we're committed to protecting people who use uh, Twitter. Uh, to advocate particularly those who are human rights advocates, dissidents, whistleblowers uh, and people advocating for individual freedoms uh, around the world,
0: yeah, I think the the incident again raised that that question that there have been around in terms of social media and just internet in general, as we share more and more of our information as we buy things online as we put up personal information, uh, even for us, like you know we we have young kids and trying to keep just photos of kids off the internet uh, besides like in some very kind of password protected areas. Uh, but those big questions about how our privacy is protected in this age, and maybe in in some ways, like our thoughts of privacy, like th- just being public and engaging in, in social media and on the internet, some in some ways, like that's not a private platform right we we connect with people and can can learn about them but in in other ways obviously we want privacy to be protected it seems to again a big a big question as we just move forward as a society into this this digital age uh, what what are some of the the big priorities or, or questions or topics that are discussed at Twitter about protecting privacy and and how important that is
1: well certainly we want to safeguard um, uh, sensitive user information and as I mentioned we've taken uh, steps to do that, both from a technical operational standpoint, but also from a uh, human resource uh, aspect of it by limiting uh, access to sensitive account information to a small group of uh, employees who are trained for this purpose. But uh, Twitter may have a slightly different pr- perspective on larger privacy uh, issues uh, to the extent to which uh, Twitter is overwhelmingly public. And a lot of uh, the data that uh, tw- people who use Twitter share uh, publicly, uh, is uh, essentially the fundamental nature of the service. Uh, Our commercial data products, uh, so to speak, uh, are based on uh, public information. So when Twitter users go uh, and share things on Twitter, uh, we're able to take out uh, and remove personal identifiers, but uh, when there's roughly 500 million tweets a day, a billion tweets every two days, even that generic information about what topics and particular geographies that people are expressing interest in uh, is valuable commercial data uh, that we're able to um, uh, commercialize with uh, partners uh, in different places. But even in that uh, uh, line of work, uh, we're also uh, cognizant of, of risks to surveillance. And so we have prohibitions in our commercial data agreements and in our Uh, API and developer uh, policies with respect to how people use and access uh, Twitter data uh, to ensure that that uh, data is not used
0: uh, for surveillance, uh, notwithstanding the uh, public nature of it. These will be big questions for, for all of us going forward, um, but you will no longer be, at least in your specific role in the conversation at Twitter. I mentioned to me before we uh, started recording today that uh, you're winding up your your time at the company. Uh, looking back on your, your tenure there, which has been the better part of, of this decade, uh, what are some of the, the things you'll, you'll take with you, some of the big things uh, you learned or favorite memories uh, you'll have as you move into this uh, next phase of your career?
1: Well, I had a... Uh, amazing experience at Twitter over the last uh, eight years. I had the good fortune to uh, be hired as the first public policy hire uh, for the company and the great joy of building out uh, a global team of amazing uh, individuals who helped to sustain uh, and uh, uh, advocate for uh, important uh, public policies that uh, fortunately for me were entirely consistent with the Uh, public policies I was advocating for and working on when I was in government, Uh, Twitter's policy compass uh, aligned very closely with my own personal policy compass. So we've been able to uh, continue to advocate for an open internet architecture for net neutrality, uh, for intermediary liability protections, all of the foundational elements of uh, internet freedom uh, that have helped to drive uh, this amazing uh, uh, internet uh, experience globally. And create a platform that allows any individual uh, anywhere really to share their views with the world in an instant. And so seeing Twitter evolve and play a special role in that and have a special um, uh, opportunity uh, to see how uh, historically smaller, uh, historically less powerful voices uh, could use Twitter to break into the media mix, uh, to use Twitter to bring, uh, to bear witness Uh, to history, to bear witness to atrocity at times, uh, but to share important perspectives. So whether that's the Me Too movement, uh, whether that's uh, Ferguson, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, there have been so many uh, moments over the course of my eight years uh, that demonstrate uh, the immense benefit uh, to humanity of uh, being able to demonstrate at times, even in tragedy, uh, the ability of human beings to respond to human suffering and to do that in real time and to do that collectively ac- across the planet. And to be part of a, a company and a public policy team that uh, helps to support uh, that type of use case uh, has been incredibly gratifying.
0: Well, Colin Kroll, thank you so much for coming back on to talk about some of the, these Twitter updates and to share a little bit of uh, your reflection as you prepare for the next step of your career. And I know of our uh, best wishes and hopes for you as you make that transition. And uh, thank you again for sharing a little bit about how your, uh, your kind of Jesuit roots uh, have led you on this path. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference Communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Doris Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at we Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.